Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre. With me is Z. Uh, this is our last episode before our two-week break, which we will be returning from on the 4th of January. Uh, but just wanted to front load that and let you guys know that this is the last one for two weeks. Um, but we're ending off with a bang. Uh, so, so let's jump right into it. So CISA issued an emergency directive yesterday calling on all federal civilian agencies to review their networks for indicators of compromise and to disconnect SolarWinds Orion's products. So um, this shocked me. Uh, this I think this is definitely the biggest news story in our space that I can think of since, like, Stuxnet. Um, this was the, the fifth emergency directive they've, they've ever issued, and this is also connected to the FireEye compromise, um, which, which also happened last week, which many of you probably heard about. Um, basically, it, it seems there was a backdoor in the supply chain, uh, which was used to pass a malicious update to uh, the group's targets that had its own backdoor. So yeah, the DLL so... would basically call out to remote network infrastructure to allow like second stage payloads and, and lateral movement and stuff like that. Um, what was that, Z? Yeah, so we don't have a lot of information about how this compromise initially happened, especially like with FireEye or with anybody else. Um, we do know that this Trojanized update was used. Um, it was digitally signed, but exactly how they got that Trojanized update. So they had an update that was signed and had a Trojan or like was backdoored um, to communicate with their CNC server and all of that. But, um, it was posted to the SolarWinds website because your standard up update process was just sysadmin would go, go to the website, see there's an update, grab it, download it, install it. Um, it seems like these basically just hit that SolarWind update site looking legitimate because they're signed and everything else. But we don't really know much about how that initial compromise happened in SolarWinds or like it could have been one of their employees was paid off. It could have been an actual compromise. It does seem like indications are leading us to think it was more likely to be a compromise rather than an insider. Um, and I'm basing that on the SEC filing for this breach. Um, they have to obviously report that there was a breach. And in this report, they have mention of SolarWinds uses Microsoft Office 365 and its email and office productivity tools. They were made aware of an attack vector that was used to compromise the company's emails and may have provided access to other data contained in the company's office productivity tools. So that sounds to me like it's possible that that was the uh, foothold that was used. Um, we don't have much confirmation. This is the only time that's actually been, or this is the only source I think that actually mentions that. Yeah, I, I didn't see that anywhere either. Um, but yeah, this is clearly like a very sophisticated attack. Um, so so this is a far bigger deal than just FireEye was. Um, for one thing, this attack was linked to uh, APT29 or Cozy Bear, which I think we might have talked Has about with Anthony on the linked? podcast before. Um, I, I think it from sources that I saw, there were unnamed sources that uh, linked it to APT. There have been, because it's been link, linked, I'm saying that with air quotes. Um, it has been mentioned with a few different APT groups, but there has been no, nobody's really done proper attribution on this yet. Uh, I think you've got a lot hard. of, you've got speculation on it. 
but beyond that it is just speculation at this point um i don't believe anybody has actually made a formal like i guess it's not really a formal process to attribute it but like I, I wouldn't say that anybody besides Twitter has really actually attributed this to anybody yet. You think it's too early to call it? it not that it's necessarily too early. I mean, FireEye might know from their research into it, but nobody, nobody that I know of reputable has actually um, done the attribution yet. Yeah, so... The, the source size or the the links that I was looking at said cozy bear, but yeah, that's fair. Like we we don't actually know for sure, um, but it does seem likely that this is a, a state sponsored attack um, due to the complexity and stuff involved. Um, complexity is a target. Mentioned that too. Yeah, no, and I definitely agree with thing that this is likely a state sponsored attack. And I'll admit, when it was the FireEye breach, and we were talking about this just in terms of FireEye, or well not talking about but like when i was saying about that it did feel a little bit weird just because like fire i was saying this was a very sophisticated attack you know possibly nation state actor yeah like why would such an actor need to go after fire eyes tooling or their red team tooling like that just didn't really make a ton of sense to me um because any sophisticated like they're going to have their own tool like why do they need fire eye stuff um, that said, this context now seeing that obviously they're part of they're one part of a much larger breach does make that like it makes a bit more sense that they also have to be using it, targeted on it. And obviously they do have other information of value. I think FireEye put a little bit of emphasis on their tooling. But I mean if they perform assessments for any government clients, like that information, even if some of it's patched, is still very useful information for you know an attacker. So I guess since we're on the topic of FireEye, um, we'll we'll talk a little bit about that and and that breach as well. So they had a bunch of tools leaked. Um, like I said, even in the initial FireEye post before we had the CISA uh, emergency directive, they suspected it was a nation state. Um, they know their assessment tools were stolen, but they said they didn't have any evidence of them being used. Um, they also didn't include any like zero days or zero day techniques. They made sure to point that out in their uh, in their initial post. Um, but those tools did com contain frameworks similar to like Metasploit and such, as well as other scripts. Um, so they've set up countermeasures, um, attempts to detect and block their tools. I think they released a bunch of like Yara and Snort rules and things of that nature. Um, they have a public repository for that. Yeah, those um, that release does seem a little bit kind of half-baked, though. Uh, it does seem like, uh, from what I know at least, that it would be fairly easy to get around some of those releases. Um, thank you, Mr. Gate, for the, uh, for the sub, tier one sub, eight months. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of wanted to ask you about this, uh, cause I was having a bit of a discussion with some people yesterday around this. Do you think FireEye's response was lackluster? Cause I initially thought when I was reading it, this was a decent response. It was, it was as transparent as I thought they would be, um, but there were some other people who were thinking like they should have gone further and these Yara rules apparently they say they suck and they can trigger like a lot of like false positives and stuff like that. So do you think they should have done more from FireEye's side? Um So FireEye as a company is generally not 
well actually i can't say generally i know there are some people in FireEye that aren't a big fan of like releasing security tools i don't want to say that's necessarily the company stance because i don't actually know if that's the case i just know there is a little bit of that at least inside which is kind of a whole discussion to have over you know is there value in releasing security tools um or you know should security tools be private i mean we can get into the whole project mayhem stuff and you know cover all the history but when it comes to fire's response like i think in terms of a response to a breach they have a ton of information are releasing more information like they're being fairly transparent about the breach should they have included more like you know i've seen some people saying they should release their tooling that's what um, i've been seeing most of is people saying they should just release the tools since they were leaked anyway and that way this instead of just these flimsy signature checks you have full binaries to work with um but I, I don't think, know if I agree with that. I think that's a bit unreasonable. I think in the interest of security, like if we're going to say like what is the ideal security option, like what should they do just for the best security, then yeah, release them. That said, they're a private company. They obviously profit off of using their tools. They've built those tools, you know, as part of their red teaming work. I can understand a company not wanting to suddenly open source their tooling just because it's been stolen. It's an interesting question, though, because it is the security tooling that's been stolen. But, um, I mean, if something like Core Impact was stolen, do we expect them to actually open source everything? It feels like we probably wouldn't, even though that would probably be better for, like, the security industry overall to have that, to be able to do better detection. I feel like they've done something. Um there's still time for them to do more like this is obviously a ongoing incident right now so we might see them release that but they weren't prepared to right now it could be that the source code is just not in a state to be released like could have information that they maybe don't want out there I, i'm not sure what exactly that would be but yeah i mean as much as from like a selfish point of view, I, I would like it if the tools were released. I think it's a very like slippery slope to expect them to do that because it's just it doesn't seem like a reasonable expectation to me. Um, so, yeah, investigation is, is still ongoing there. Um, but jumping back to the CISA issues, um, this is this gets much bigger because some of the potential customers or actually the customers that are listed, um, you're talking like Department of Defense, U.S. Air Force, U.S. Treasury, Secret Service, uh, U.S. Postal Service, Lockheed Martin, Visa, MasterCard, and Microsoft. I mean, you have a lot of confirmed breach targets and potential targets that could have been breached as well. Yeah, and I don't um, remember if it's in this SEC filing or if it was somewhere else, but something like 400 out of the... Um... Uh, Fortune 500 companies run this, That's which crazy. is very significant. Um, I'd say he so. Heavily used, a lot of possible targets. Um, ongoing, you know, that update was there for a while. So uh, um, Microsoft was one of the confirmed targets that was hit. Um, I have a tweet here from Kim's, Kim Zetter. Uh, said, I have a report from Microsoft, including uh, indicators of compromise. Excerpts from this thread, Microsoft security researchers recently discovered a sophisticated attack where an adversary inserted malicious code into a supply chain development process. 
Um, why it's, it's, I think Microsoft is probably the most scary one of the corporations that are on the list, maybe next to Lockheed Martin. That's another big one too. But, um, what, what's scary, what's scary with Microsoft is according to some other tweets that I saw, which I will also bring up really quick. Um, it seems that they have integration with Microsoft Azure, which is, uh, for those of you not familiar, Microsoft Azure is like their, their cloud solution stuff. Um, if if it's integrated with Azure and those could have been compromised too, then you have like another branch of like anything that could have been using Azure is now also potentially like could have been hit here. So I, this is like crazy. It, the story got crazier and crazier as more stuff came out about it. Um, like I said earlier, I, I think this is probably, this is the biggest thing since Stuxnet and maybe this is a hot take, but I think this is probably bigger, a bigger deal. Um, so yeah, I believe the only targets that have been confirmed to be compromised, at least um, the last I read, was FireEye, the U.S. Treasury, U.S. Commerce, and uh, Microsoft. Z, I don't know if you have any other on it, other um, companies to add to that list. I there is one I don't remember. It started with an N. It was another U.S. department. Um, yeah, I I don't remember what was it didn't seem all that important but it, it was one that i could have confirmed but i don't remember um yeah yeah it's not in the sec filing either but in the sec filing they do mention that they uh reported uh 13 000 of their clients like reported that they may have been compromised or were using the compromised version um out so of 300 000. So I think it's safe to assume that if your company or government agency is using the compromised version or the like the tar the the ver the malicious version that was distributed, you probably were compromised because it doesn't really make sense for a nation state sponsored attack to hit all of these targets and then just not pull any information from them. I mean, that was the entire point of the attack. So they they probably got information from any agency or co corporation that was using that compromised version um that is a bit of a stipulation though like if they didn't update to that malicious version then they they probably weren't hit but that's where i kind of have a question i don't know if you have an answer to this c how often are these types of products updated in like the enterprise environment are they kept updated often to try to prevent issues like this I mean, ideally, yes. I can't actually say like what a Fortune 500 update plan would be on something like that. But I mean, this is tooling for the management of their infrastructure. So, like, if you're running that, you probably care somewhat about the act, like, about being updated and stuff. But it doesn't have like an automatic update, which I did find a little bit interesting, which would have made this. Much, uh, much more interesting yeah if it had like some sort of automated update system obviously i think a lot of their clients though are going to be running this in environments where just automatic updates probably aren't an option like air gap networks uh they just don't want connecting out although i guess i'm saying that but yet that doesn't make sense for the fact there was a breach and it did connect out um because uh the actual methodology of the malware was that after about two weeks of being idle, it would connect out. So I'm obviously mistaken about that thought. But yeah, as far as I'm aware, there was no auto update functionality. 
Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how often things like that would be. I would expect them to be reasonably up to date, although they are going to take some time to make sure it's not going to break anything. So I do yeah, want I mean, to touch on. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, that's what I found the most interesting part is that, you know, this is like IT uh, management product and the, the, the mantra of IT and something we said on the podcast a lot too is to make sure you're staying up to date. And in this case, that's what screwed them. So it's kind of, uh, it's a funny twist of fate there. Uh, but sorry, you were, uh, I'll let you go on. Oh, I was, I was going to change the topic a little bit um, and okay. jump back on to kind of like the methodology. Because okay. uh, I did find it interesting. Um, I guess I opened the wrong link here. Uh, uh, but FireEye did put out a good post. I thought I had the link, but apparently I don't. Uh, do you happen to have the other FireEye post link? Otherwise, I'll pull it up. Um, I, I thought I had it, but I don't think I have it either. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think you you might have to pull it up. I'm just going to do a quick search, see if I can find it. All right. So here's the other post there, the threat research. They put out this post um, yesterday uh, going into a lot of the details about the back door. This is where we found out that, OK, they were able to sign these things, which is actually kind of an important detail uh, when it comes to this breach. Like oftentimes when it's looking at those updates, is it signed? OK, it's just kind of trusted because it is a binary. Uh, you don't have the source code access. You can't like try and build it yourself. So you just see it's signed. Uh, they do cover, and this is one of the few times this comes up in a somewhat positive light, but steganography, uh, which I absolutely hate seeing challenges of steganography. But they I do cover how they uh, kind of hid some of their messages going back and forth. And one of, part of that was that they pretended to be... Um, what was it? Orion Improvement, I think is what they called it. Yeah, Orion Improvement P Program Protocol is what they masqueraded their network traffic as. And then they would hide information, the GUIDs and hex strings that were kind of present in some of that. So they made it look like a legitimate... Um, like legitimate messages. Did a little bit of hiding there. I just thought it was interesting to see that. I mean, from the exploit side, I don't really care for steganography. I don't, on the pen testing side, it matters a little bit more as you're trying to exfil data. Like, there's reasons for that, but I do like seeing it in terms of like, this is something that was actually used by a fairly sophisticated attacker. Um, out of chat, we've got the you know, comment there of saying that the government sector should use fully open source software from Keenan 1099. That comes down to is open source either, so. software more secure than closed source software. I we see vulnerabilities in everything, and this was kind of at the supply chain. Um, the same attack could have been performed against other systems. Now, there's a chance it will be caught if they have a uh, repeatable build system, uh, so you can actually like try and do the same build that would return the same. Uh, same binary with the same hash. Um, but given that this was at the supply chain level, like it's not an open source versus closed source issue, I don't think. Uh, there are benefits to open source. I am a proponent of open source software, but 
I generally wouldn't make the argument that yeah, open source is just more secure. Um, it comes down to funding. It comes down to the eyes looking at the software. Open source, you know, can be extremely insecure if nobody's actually looking at the software. If nobody's looking at the code, who cares if it's open source? It doesn't matter at that point. Um, it's just it's like band aid fix for some that isn't or and it doesn't even fix the issue. Yeah, and then you also have that point where open source is also a little bit easier to attack, too, because you don't have to do any reverse engineering or anything like that to be able to find issues. Um, you can do source code review, which is often easier uh, to, at least initially, to uh, to start doing. So th there's there's trade-offs with both. Um, I think we could table that discussion for, for another time. I don't think we want to go too much into that here, because we're already going to be spending a lot of time on this topic. Um, but yeah yeah but i do agree with you um kind of one of the comments you were saying earlier there about this being fair a fairly big deal um comparable with stuxnet because stuxnet i mean was interesting just because it was well i mean one it was attacking like a nuclear system um it was subtle in what it was doing to try and mess up the Ar iranian research this one's interesting in a different way. In one, it's attacking the U.S., potentially impacting a lot of the U.S. government and a lot it's of agencies. It's impacting way more targets, yeah. Yes. Um, which I'm going to be curious about what the attribution looks like on this one, but I don't know. Oh. It'll be interesting to see what the final impact of this actually is once they've actually figured out more. I'm especially curious on what the entry point was here to solar winds. Oh, yeah, like, I mean, these, these kinds of investigations can take months, so it, it'll probably be a while before we, we see anything on that. Um, I imagine, like, the, the security departments at these, like, com companies and federal agencies are probably on fire this week. <laughs> Today's probably not a very fun day for them. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you were saying, like, this was uh, different from Stuxnet and how it was interesting. There were some interesting parallels, though, um, that I found, like, that were similar to Stuxnet. Um, for one, that, that root cert compromise seems uh, like a, a good similarity to point out. You you kind of touched on it earlier. We didn't touch on it too much, but it seems like a cert, uh, you know, they were able to digitally sign this update, so they had a cert. Um, the other thing was the, the subtlety aspect, right? You so were saying this not... took like two weeks to to execute. They um, may not have had the cert. Um, that is kind of important there. This was signed. That doesn't mean they had the cert. Um, what it does mean is that uh, they were able to get it signed. So that could have been that they compromised uh, somebody with access to the build system. Uh, but not so they were able to get it built. They could have been that they just injected this DLL like into that into like that person who was able to build it. Um, they were injected into their builds to get it included. Um, it, it's not a hundred percent certain that they've actually compromised the certificate itself. They very well may have, uh, but it's just not not clear at this point to say that they definitely did. Yeah, that's another thing we may have to to wait for more information to come out on um, yeah i mean a lot of this at this point is speculation yeah. um we just we don't have all the information yet uh one thing 
had a chat, um, National Telecommunications and Information Administration. Um, I didn't want to comment on that directly, but that does remind me. Um, I, I covered some of the companies that were potentially targeted, like Visa, MasterCard, Microsoft. Um, there were also telecom companies in the U.S. that were also potentially breached, uh, like Warner Brothers. Um, I think there were a few others, but yeah, there were some telecom companies potentially hit too. Like the, across like probably like every industry, there could be uh, problems that could that come out of this. It's it's pretty incredible how how widespread it seems to be. Um, but yeah, I mean, we'll we'll keep a lookout and see if there's any updates after like investigations are done on this. I think we will probably get updates in the future just because it's it's too big of a story to just sweep under the rug after this week, you know. So I, I think we'll get more updates and we'll be able to talk about. Uh, oh yeah, a bit I, more I definitely expect stuff later that. on. Sorry, that we'll get more updates on this. I mean, FireEye. Uh, we were talking earlier about whether or not they've been transparent, but like they've included a ton of information. Um, I mean, they've been breaching their, their, uh, you know, in a very good position to have a lot of information about what happened and what's going on. And they have been sharing that publicly. Yeah. Uh, I will quickly say as well, I think this is, um, this kind of shows the need for an organization like CISA. Cause I think CISA was formed in 2015. Right. Um, and like it'd be interesting to see what the situation looked like without uh, an organization like that, because um, what CISA requires is all uh, federal agencies they had to not only shut down um, shut down the the product, the Solar Winds product, and anything that used it, but also they had to submit reports and look for indicators of compromise. Um, and I think they're they're like legally compelled to do that by Congress. So it'd be interesting to see what it would look like if they weren't compelled to do that. I think that the situation would be even worse than it already is. So yeah, I mean, there's point in favor of CISA. Yeah. CISA has, and we've, we've covered some other things coming out of CISA before. Um, definitely. Uh, I think I zero login a... was, uh, was advised by CISA too, right? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it was. That, that sounds, sounds like something they would. Uh, but yeah, so following up with what you said, though, uh, reports had to be in by 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time today for for all the agencies that were operating SolarWinds products. So they weren't given very much time at all. No, it was a very busy morning for people involved. Probably night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there there were probably people woken out of bed for uh, for this. So yeah, we'll uh, we'll move on because we've we spent like 20. 25 minutes on that so spent a little bit longer than we were intending to there but um we'll talk about google so um google put out a quick post on their open source security foundation initiative um basically they've released a new project called a criticality score and this is used to indicate the product's critical impact from zero to one uh, and this is based on various metrics so product uh, project age uh, number of contributors involved user involvement dependencies via commit mentions um, and they even provide a way to add your own metrics into that if you wanted. Essentially, it's an implementation of an algorithm devised by Rob Pike. I can't really read out the algorithm to you because it's complex math stuff using logarithms and, and all that fun stuff. Um, but the repo does have a nice little table. Um, I'm just going to pull up the repo really quick. They do have a nice little table that shows all the parameters they look for and their weightings. Um, so, for example, the dependencies and contributor count has a weight factor of 2, 
whereas the creation uh, and updated since only has a weight of one, and recent releases has a weight of 0 0.5. So that that table is like a really nice summary of essentially what this project is doing. Um, it, it's not totally security related, but I thought it was a cool initiative nonetheless and could add value. Um, they have public listings as well on a per language basis for like the top 500 uh, projects with criticality scores for like the cert whatever language they're talking about. So for C, uh, the top project is Git at 0 0.94, followed up by the Linux kernel at 0 0.93 and 0 0.92. Uh, the higher one being the Raspberry Pi fork, which I thought was interesting, but I guess it kind of makes sense because there's probably a lot of projects that are based on the Raspberry Pi fork of the kernel. Um, number four and five are PHP and OpenSSL. So projects that you'd expect to be in, in the top uh, are there, basically. Um, C++ had like TensorFlow and Bitcoin and some other crypto-related stuff in the top 10. Um, for anybody that's interested in seeing the projects that they evaluated, um, I'll get the, the link in the chat there. Um, but yeah, they have like C, C++, Go, Java. They have a few languages in there uh, with the top list. So sorry, I, I said top 500. It's top 200. I made a bit of a mistake there. Oh, well, now we're going to miss out on 300 of those. You should probably fill them in for us. Um, <laughs> one thing I will say about this on a whole, it is, it's an important move. We were just talking a little bit about the open force security. Uh, or... Yeah, open source security, sorry. Um, we were talking a little bit about that, and this ties in very much with open open source security. Um, there are a lot of projects out there that don't get a lot of eyes on, and there are some that do. Um, I think the classic example to kind of point out here is stuff like uh, Heartbleed and OpenSSH, or OpenSSL, whatever it was. Um, you had issues like that open source software, but just not getting a lot of eyes looking at it. This uh, could definitely help there. This will help get eyes on the right projects, potentially. Um, I did notice that right now they are only covering what's on GitHub. Uh, they do say that these lists are derived from projects hosted on GitHub only, although they plan to expand that in the near future. But that is kind of a limiting factor here because there are a lot of projects like I guess they do mention Linux kernel, but like even the kernel, you know, is technically hosted off on git.kernel.org. Um, so, it's just mirrored over here, but it is over on GitHub at least. But So I was about to say there that actually does make me wonder. I wonder how this works with uh, with mirrored projects, because some of the metrics that they mentioned for calculating the score could seem like they would be hard to measure with a mirrored project. You wouldn't be able to get all the contributors, for example, I don't think. No, um, you unless... still would, because the contributors are part mirror. of... yeah. The contribute. well, I mean, yeah, I guess if they just do, like, a single, like, uh, merge everything whenever they do, like, a major update committed over on GitHub, then they yeah. wouldn't, but, like, as long as it's a proper mirrored project, then the committers, even if they're not part of the GitHub system, will still show up in there. You'll still be able to see in the commit logs yeah i've but definitely I, seen some mirror projects though that aren't like proper mirrors and they do exactly what you said and, and merge everything and that that would definitely mess with this the scoring system yeah on, on a whole like i don't 
I don't see anything really that stands out as crazy wrong or anything with how they're doing the calculation, their weightings. There's nothing that feels too off. Yeah, I mean, some of the some of the metrics, I wish they do have a bit of a justification for why they have the weightings the way they do. Like, um, uh, yeah, I like mean, I why would love more contributor count is so like weighted so heavily because I guess the number of contributors does kind of matter because the more contributors, the more likely issues get fixed and the more likely new code gets introduced. But I don't know. I just wish there were a bit of justifications there. It's kind of a metric of how many people are working on it. Um, and I mean, to some extent, if you have a lot of people, you also maybe have more risk of like an insider adding something. Yeah, that's a fair point. Oh. So, Overall, I think this is really cool. Uh, one thing that does suck, though, is I did give this a try. You will get rate limited so fast. Um, I did one project. I did one of the Open Orbis projects, and I got rate limited after doing the one project. I went to do another one, and it was like, oh, sorry, you have to wait an hour. Like, okay. Um, so if I was going to do what you were saying earlier and add the additional 300, that would take me quite a long time. Um, and that actually makes me wonder how they compiled those lists of like, uh, 200 projects per language or whatever, when like I was getting hit with this rate limit. I don't know if they had like a, some other endpoint they were using that they're not publishing. I don't know. Or, but, you know, yeah, they you, just you pay for access. I, I assume well, you yeah. can get around the rate limits with money. Probably, yeah. Um, so yeah, if you want to use it, you're probably only going to use it on, on one project at a time. But yeah, overall, I think it's a it's a cool initiative, and uh, I, I think it adds value, like I said earlier, to the open source community. All right, so we'll jump into some exploits. So vulnerabilities were found uh, in McAfee ePolicy or Orchestrator. Um, this involved three exploit chains. Um, it starts with an RCE via a CSERF, SSRF, and Man in the Middle chained together. Um, the, the admin panel has a feature to verify if a database is running or not via this test connection functionality. Problem is, the request query is sent in the post header directly, um, and there's no CSERF protection on that. So that allows you to alter the password of, I believe it's the super user account. They call it an SA account. Um, yeah, super if... admin. Super admin, right. Okay. Um, so yeah, that can allow you to authorize as that user and run commands through the MSSQL shell. Second yeah, issue. So I've... Oh, go ahead. I might get to um, it. Yeah, no worries. Uh, second issue is in the software extensions component, which allows installation of extensions. These extensions are zip files. So you can guess where this is probably going. Um, there's path traversals in the zip contents because, of course, um, this issue does require authentication to hit, though. Um, and they also found a reflected XSS in the policy details card, uh, which is probably the least impactful issue of the three, but it's also the only one that I think they got a CVE for. <laughs> so that's pretty funny. Because um, the first issue was fixed in a cumulative update in 2019. So this might have just been a finding due to like a version incompatibility on the researcher's side. I'm not really sure. Um, the second issue McAfee stated was working as intended. And so it wasn't fixed. Um, their, their main reasoning was it's an administrator functionality, which I find kind of odd. I, I don't fully agree with that. I mean, it could be that plugins, they intend to allow plugins to operate their own files. I think that is a sketchy decision, but it is a legitimate choice nonetheless. 
There should um, be at least some kind of restriction, though, on the on like folders or whatever you can overwrite. Yeah, I, I mean, like I said, it's a sketchy decision when you start to allow that. But mm-hmm. that could be their decision, or they could just be making it because it's an admin feature. We don't care. I do want to jump back a little bit on the whole man in the middle stuff, though, uh, with okay. the very first uh, exploits that sea surf. Um, kind of the reason why that ends up happening. So it's part of uh, like the actions are still part of the post body. It's just when you include. So first of all, it's not protected by any sea surf token. That they don't explicitly mention this, but it seems like that's just because um, this test aspect isn't supposed to be a um, it's not supposed to be a stateful action. Like it just tests the database credentials and like inf- connection information that you give it. It's not supposed to change anything. So because of that, they didn't put any CSER protection on it. Generally, the recommendation is anything that makes a stateful change to the application should have a token on it. Uh, so in this case, with that one config call, it, it didn't have it because of that. Um, and then that, of course, leads to a server-side request forgery. Basically, it's, it's connecting to the database. They're, they're able to man in the middle it, though. I mean, I don't think you really... You just touched on the fact they could inject, but... Effectively, if you control where it's going to try and connect and do the test with the database, all they do is they set it up to go attack, uh, to go uh, try and test this attacker database, uh, database location, I should say. Have it try and attack that or try and connect to that, I should say, not attack. Um, tries to connect to the attacker. The attacker then reads whatever it does and tries to send that off to the proper database. Uh, so it basically just proxies it along. Uh, kind of man in the middle. Uh, but because it's proxying it along, they then control the query that it tries to do, and that's where they're able to inject the uh, query to change the super admin password. But this does also mean that you need to have access to the backend database system that it is using. And you need to know the backend database system that it is using. Um, so that means that for most attack scenarios, you've got to be on the same network um because it's unlikely that they're exposing this on the internet they might be exposing the database to the internet uh, without any other protection but it feels a little bit unlikely that that's happening but that is kind of the case it, it does restrict this one i think a bit um when you need to have an exposed database most systems aren't really just exposing it out to the internet Yeah, so it is kind of a cool attack. Uh, practicality is limited, but unfortunately, like I said earlier, that that issue was already discovered and fixed before um, the the researcher reported it. So yeah, it seems there was like a versioning compatibility there. So the reflected XSS was the least interesting issue, and like I said, it was the only one that got a CVE assigned and was was fixed. So, um, but yeah, there we go. Three vulnerabilities and McAfee. Yeah, so before we move on to the next topic, I did want to pull one question out of chat, which is just uh, from Mark Arenas. Uh, but what is the best path to get good at exploiting stuff? Um, and I think somebody else kind of answered that to him. A uh, root email there, practice, read write-ups, try to follow how others got there and see if you can reproduce it. Pretty much that. I'm a huge fan of open security training in their Introduction to Software Exploitation course. 
um it's kind of like just getting started if you know scene assembly to jump into that um after that there are a few other resources um but generally speaking it you've just got to get some of the experience and once you've learned the basics so that open security training course um maybe you know exploit courses there are a few resources that if you're on discord you can ask me about oh uh, but once you've got those basics it just comes down to looking at write-ups trying to re-implement them or just choosing a target and going at it and struggling and suffering through it for a while um it's really just you get better as you get practice that mention of open security training reminds me um we we totally forgot to add a topic for this but as uh, neo kova did put out a tweet saying that he's going to be uh doing open security training stuff full time now uh, i think before he worked at apple he's i don't think he's working at apple anymore he's going to be dedicating all his time into open security training so uh worth keeping an eye out on ost cuz uh there there's probably going to be more courses and stuff coming out in the in the future so that's uh that's some exciting news yeah i was uh, i recall when that got tweeted out um was exciting news but we'll see what happens with that um i'm definitely hoping he's able to get kind of the funding out if it looks like he's going for corporate funding yeah um i'll, I'll also add on there i'm a big fan of some people a lot of people like to recommend ctf for uh for learning security and stuff getting into it I will say I'm not a huge fan of that just because CTF is especially nowadays, like it's getting more and more gimmicky to the point where it's, it's not really reminiscent of, of real world scenarios. Unfortunately, um, I'm a big fan though of re-implementing like end days. I think that's the best way to learn because it is real world scenarios. There's no, uh, like artificial, there's no artificial introductions. It's it's as real world as you can get basically outside of maybe like zero days, which obviously is not what you want to start out with if you're just getting into it. So yeah, I'm a big fan of looking at write-ups and, and trying to re-implement stuff. Yeah, I'll so. comment on the CTF aspect. Of, I, it is important. Generally, uh, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but when you talk about CTFs and when I talk about CTFs, I'm thinking of the competitive CTFs, um, you know, DEF CON, main game or qualifiers, even uh, plaid. A lot of those that have, you know, these binary challenges on them are kind of focused in on that area and not so much. I know a lot of people will call things like hack the box a CTF. Um, I've always called them war games for the things that are kind of online 24 seven. And I actually feel like those, like the war games, can be a useful area to practice on. Something like Ponable.kr, for example, uh, you know, has some practice binaries for you that you can go ahead and use. And like, I think there's use in those sites, uh, even our own 0x0539.net. Um, resources like that kind of generally are a little bit better than just the more gimmicky ctfs that are like the competitive ctfs from these modern days i guess um uh, they're generally a lot more accessible um they'll have more easy problems that maybe aren't interesting to the most competitive teams yeah i will walk back a little bit and say a few of the recent ctfs i've seen actually have tried to go a little bit more real world um, like I think we covered one on the podcast, maybe last episode of the episode before, but they had like a Linux kernel challenge. Now the driver was like written by the author. It wasn't an end day and like some commonly used driver or anything, but um, 
I do like those kinds of challenges. I think those could still offer value, but unfortunately there are a lot of like CTFs that are just so gimmicky. It's like, it's a situation that's only going to apply to that artificial binary. You're never going to find it in real world. So yeah, CTFs are a bit wishy-washy. It, it kind of varies depending on who's organizing it. But I think when you're talking about like end days and re-implementing them and maybe even some of the war game sites, you have a lot more consistency with, um, with like quality when it comes to learning stuff. Yeah, that's that's where I'll I'll end off uh, answering that question. Yeah, um, honestly, the more practice that you get, if if that does come from CTFs, even though we're not necessarily recommending it, you know, if, if that's what interests you and you actually enjoy that, by all means, you know, as long as you're practicing, as long as you're getting that experience, you're going to be learning something. Yeah. All right. So we'll move on to uh, novel abuses on Wi-Fi direct mobile transfers. So this is about um, abusing a functionality provided on Android phones for uh, direct mobile transfers, uh, primar primarily the fact that they rely on custom implementations, and those implementations have a shared design. So once a connection is established, any application running on the device can, uh, that has internet privileges can interact with the file transfer client and server. They researched into uh, three vendors and the technology that they use uh, lg smart share huawei share and xiaomi me share i'm probably not saying that right i can never pronounce xiaomi um but yeah so lg smart share uh they had probably the most issues um they had valid valid session ids were not required to finalize transfers for one thing and the receive port is hard-coded um they're not using like ephemeral ports or anything like that um, the session IDs are also very easy to guess or brute force. Um, they're essentially just 0 to 100. And the file paths aren't checked and can be changed in the background from what's displayed in the prompts. Also, multiple files can be sent without any notification to the user. So LG seems to have lost the battle here. Um, there were some other ones here that had issues too, though. Uh, Huawei Share seemed to be more secure in terms of design, but in terms of implementation, it was more buggy. Uh, they found multiple ways to crash the client and server services. And that's an issue because it's not just a DOS, because you can rebind to the same port after you crash the service and uh, receive notify events to steal session IDs. And then finally, uh, Xiaomi Mi Share basically had the same issue as Huawei Share, but through WebSockets. Um, they do pra uh, praise Xiaomi a, a bit here, since Mi Share is hardened more than the others by using per-session TLS certs. But... um. Yeah, so it seems they they kind of ordered them in in order of least secure to most secure, with uh, LG being the least and and Xiaomi being the most. It's it's interesting though because this is the first blog post I've seen that really touches on these types of design flaws with mobile file transfers. I hadn't really thought of it before personally, um, but that's also probably because I I don't use this functionality. I I don't care about these direct mobile transfers. Uh, it's just not something I use. So, um, but yeah, th this seems a uh, this is the first I've seen of these kinds of attacks. I don't know about Uzi. Yeah, no, I, I mean, looking at that, I, I believe, I mean, they do say at the start there, it's novel abuses on it. Um, it's an interesting attack service. So yeah, I haven't really thought too much about. I think we've seen some, especially on uh, Apple's thing. Oh, what is that? Like Apple share, I share, whatever they call it. Um, I don't think that's the name of it, but Apple has they're over the air sharing. I think I've seen some attacks against that before. Um, I think we even covered a brute force, like denial of service on it once. 
Um, I want to say that we've seen stuff on Apple Share before, or whatever it's called. I can't remember either before too, but I I can't remember when we would have covered it. So, yeah. But yeah, it's it's interesting technology, and uh, it's an attack surface that isn't really explored much. So we have an LPE uh, in PS Exec. So this is in a Sys internals tool uh, called PS Exec, which allows you to execute programs remotely. To facilitate that, it uses named pipes. Um, in this case, PS Exec SVC. Obviously, that pipe is going to be protected. Um, usually, only admins can read and write to it. Everyone doesn't have permissions because that's a very powerful functionality. That's that is literally RCE. So the problem is. If you can create the pipe and reserve it first or squat the pipe, um, you can obtain a handle to it. And unfortunately, the service, uh, it can have an unlimited number of pipe instances because they don't use the right flag. And the service doesn't check if it's the first instance. So this essentially can allow you to hijack the pipe. And this issue works all the way from Windows XP to the latest Windows 10. They were given a 90-day disclosure deadline uh, and they didn't fix it. So this is actually still a zero day, technically. I believe. Yeah, and this one uh, is very, you know, straightforward and simple. Um, obviously existed for quite a long time. I'm surprised it's existed for so long. Um, and I haven't seen anybody else write this up. I actually went to look to see, like, has anybody else posted or written off about this issue before? And as far as I can tell, no. Um, I mean, to be fair, like, your abuse of it does depend on somebody connecting to the machine and using PS exact, like being able to authenticate to the machine and doing that. Um, so that like you're, you're waiting on somebody to do that. So that does limit its usefulness, but it's definitely usable. I will quickly thank somebody in the chat. Uh, Kenan said, by the way, you were probably thinking about airdrop that that's it. Airdrop. See, like we don't even use these technologies enough to even know what they're properly called. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I mean, it's funny when I think about it. I'll, so many of the Windows issues we've covered on this show lately have been these like higher level design level issues instead of like technical deep dive exploits. Um, like the Windows print spooler stuff we've covered, uh, print demon. This this topic. Well, it seems a lot of the Windows the... stuff we're covering. Oh, the file reader, like the sim linking stuff. Yeah, that too. Like, there's a lot of like uh, Windows issues that just seem to be kind of more surface level, for lack of a better word. Um, which is interesting because Windows has been like trying to get better with with security, and they have been. Well, um, but that but, can it, partially be why, because you do have a few more mitigations to deal with or potentially deal with on Windows. Uh, plus, just the stability of an exploit. Um. On, on Windows can be a little bit more harder to obtain just because of um, like the inconsistency with syscalls and stuff. Uh, so because of that, like these AppSec, higher AppSec level issues are just an easier target uh, for a consistent exploit. Yeah, and another thing I'll quickly mention is uh, Windows, it, it's funny, Windows lower level is actually probably more secure than than most. Maybe not Apple, but because um, Windows does have CFI, and I believe they have kernel CFI now as well. So they have a lot going on at the lower level, and that is actually a fair point. That might be why we're seeing a move to these uh, these higher-level issues that are easier to hit. just makes more sense from an attacker standpoint. 
Um, but yeah, like you said, this does require some specific circumstances to exploit. I do find it weird that Microsoft ha didn't patch the issue in the 90-day window. I mean, we've talked about Microsoft in the past with being, you know, kind of late with fixing issues and stuff, but this seems like the type of issue that shouldn't be super hard to fix. It seems like it would just be a flag change. So I, I don't know why it's taking them so long to, to, to push a patch out for this. Um, Sometimes things can be more complicated than it seems. Um, yeah, I don't know either. I, it's just, you know, what seems like it might just be a flag change might actually be more complicated. Yeah, maybe it breaks other stuff or there was a reason they, they used that original flag in the first place. Hard to tell. But yeah, hopefully it is fixed uh, at some point in the near future. Yeah. Uh, keeping on the Windows train, we have another Windows issue. Uh, this one is from Project Zero, and it is a a very complex issue. There's a lot of TLAs in here, and I I really hate TLAs. But um, there I'll let you are uh, a, easy. Uh, there are a lot of um, uh, three letter acronyms in here. If you're not familiar with that particular TLA three letter acronym, um, this it's just kind of really kind of in the dirt i guess or like nitty gritty with the details on this one uh but the issue itself I, I thought was kind of fun so the issue here from the title is uh waf fs control set reparse point x cache sign level sfb basically what you're able to get here is you're able to get an arbitrary file to be cached as though it were a, uh to have the extended attributes uh set as though it were a signed file Um, so I think one of the key things with that, uh, the way this issue ended up working, sorry, I got distracted by chat, <laughs> is with the reparse points, if you're not familiar, um, you can set kind of on any file on a directory on anything like that, you can go ahead and set a reparse point, which effectively just tells the file system as it's parsing it to go oh, I need to look at this data that's attached with it. So you set a reparse point along with some data that goes along with it. So um, your application will have kind of this overlay driver, you know, a, bu a bunch of lower level file system concepts here. But essentially you're telling the file system, don't parse this file as the file that's actually there. Instead, we've got this other data for you to parse instead. Um, and that's using this Windows overlay filter, the WOF that you might see in the report here. Um, so, and you would register a driver that would be able to handle that data. Uh, so this is like how NTFS will implement compressed files by compressing the file into um, kind of as that reparse data and then just setting the tag on to say, yeah, this is, this is a reparse point and reparse so the trick here with this one finally kind of getting into that um you take an unsigned dll and kind of create your file with that um and then you add a compressed stream onto onto that so setting the reparse tag adding the compressed stream with a signed dll so that way when you end up calling uh, nt set cache signing level which is the thing that actually goes and checks is this file signed? If it is, it sets a little cache entry or extended attribute entry saying, hey, this file is signed and we don't need to check it again. It'll just trust that. 
so when he set that as the compressed file as being a legitimate signed file, you end up with it, you know, treating it as though it's signed because it is like that's the file it's reading. The kind of trick on this one is the FS control set reparse point X handler in the driver um, isn't actually implemented by the window overlay filter driver. So when you call it, you end up going off to the default implementation of it, which doesn't handle the fact that there's this compressed file attached. Uh, so you end up removing the reparse point, but you don't trigger the deletion of the extended attributes when you do that, leaving it to say this file is still signed, but when you remove that reparse point, it's no longer going and saying, hey, I need to reparse this file as whatever else and passing off to the driver. It's now seeing that original file. And there's a bit of a trick involved with uh, keeping that original file there uh, through some manual calls. But the gist of it was uh, being able to remove that reparse point without actually triggering uh, the deletion of the extended attribute saying that it was signed. End result, you fake this compressed file, which is now uh, not handled, or you have a signed compressed file, get it treated as an uncompressed file where it's not signed and it's some completely other DLL, and the kernel still thinks it's signed. So, of course, I just got finished saying on the last topic that uh, the issues we've been covering on Windows lately have been like surface level issues. This is the exact opposite of a surface level issue. I, when I was like looking at this and, and hearing you, you know, go through the implementation, it, it makes me wonder how do people like Forshaw find the, these types of issues? Like how much research went into finding this bug? This seems like one of those bugs that's so involved that it probably took like months of, of looking at it to like looking at the subsystems and stuff to like find this issue. I mean, he clearly understands the subsystem. For sure. Um, I mean, we're talking oh. about four shot here, so. Uh, yeah, the I mean, chat, uh, the Mr. Gate asked, you know, could a fuzzer have found it? Um, I doubt it. It feels, because uh, this is kind of a bit more logical, too, rather than like a crash, because you don't get a crash out of this. This is just kind of like you have an issue where you're able to delete... Um, and actually, if I had to make a guess, it was probably he was looking at if any of the default filters uh, had functions that didn't or that would get passed through to kind of the default implementation. That would kind of be my guess as to what he might have been looking for and then reasoning about, OK, what can I do with this now that he found one? Um, again, that's a complete guess. Um, but yeah, the fuzzers generally wouldn't find it because they usually look for a crash. You need some sort of either this would need to cause the crash or you need a sanitizer in place that would detect this and cause the crash. In both cases, I don't see it as uh, something that would have been found by a fuzzer. Yeah, no, this, this is the exact type of issue that somebody who looks at subsystems for months would find and, and just report on kind of like uh kind of like that Ian Beer Apple post that we covered on the last episode. Pro Project Zero, and Project Zero, I think, they mostly focus on manual review. I don't think they do... I, I know they do some fuzzing, especially for, like, the browser stuff, but um, yeah, I actually these types did of issues little, are usually more manual review. I actually did a little graph um, recently looking at all the issues that Project Zero has reported, um, and it's only a couple that have methodology fuzzing, 
on it, and I think both of them were browser related. Uh, generally yeah. speaking, it's all like manual manual assessments, uh, static assessments. Um, they might use some automated tooling there, but it doesn't seem like too many of them are being discovered through um, fuzzing from Project Zero. I was about to say, I just noticed on the page, it actually just says methodology manual right there. So it oh, yeah. <laughs> could have been a much uh, much quicker answer. <laughs> um, I, I did want to address something you said, though, like because don't fuzzers uh, focus on the low-hanging fruit and deeper trigger triggerable bugs require hard work. There, there was, we covered this a little bit on the last episode, actually. I like Ian Beer's quote, low-hanging fruit isn't really a, a good way of, of generalizing what fuzzers find. Fuzzers find fuzzable bugs and i'm i know that sounds kind of dumb to say but it's like there are definitely a lot of low-hanging issues that a fuzzer just wouldn't be able to find um and a lot of that comes down to what z already said with you need some kind of indicator like a crash and some of the lower hanging fruit bugs if they're like logical issues you're just not really going to be able to detect that with a fuzzer even if it does trigger it you're not going to know it so and and fuzzers can reach deeper issues, especially when you're talking about smart fuzzing and 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 coverage guided. But yeah, I mean, just saying that they they find low hanging fruit is is kind of I think it's something that's said a lot and isn't really true, especially not anymore. So yeah, just wanted to quickly address that. Um, all right, so I think we can move on to uh, PS4. So web, a WebKit exploit was released by uh, Mehdi Talbi and Quentin Meffrey. I hope I said that right. I'm 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 gonna go on as if I said that. Now, right. do, do these two do they have a like more known handle in the PS4 scene? I'm I'm not really no, involved there. No. So um, they're they're not really they weren't really in the PS4 scene. They're they're researchers from Synactive, so I think they were just they looked at it because they thought it was an interesting target. Um, I don't think they're really interested in like homebrew and stuff like that. Then again, I, I could be wrong. Um, but yeah, I, I think that they just go by the real names. I don't think they have any other handles. Um, so yeah, uh, they were looking at PS4. They targeted PS4 on 6.xx uh, firmware, and it could be made to work up to uh, 7.0x firmwares, I think. Um, it's a DOM based use after free in the build bubble tree method, which is used for updating the layout of JS event handlers. Um, so there's this internal message object that gets used called a validation method. Uh, sorry, a validation message. Um, and if that gets destroyed by one of those uh, event handlers that gets ran, when execution reaches back up to that build bubble tree method, um, it'll operate on the destroyed object. And that's where the use after free comes into play. It seems the WebKit devs were aware of the possibility and they tried to prevent the issue, um, but they missed an extra dereference, which uh, which introduced a point of failure in the validation message instance. So WebKit is really tricky to exploit. It takes a lot of work. Um, I could say that from personal experience. Uh, one of the problems they encountered was the fact that they had to fake a pointer to a method in order to avoid crashing. And that's because in the execution path, uh, the dot get method gets called when the bubble position is adjusted. And it seems you can't really prevent that method from getting called. Um, so in order to get around that, they used a, a really cool strategy. They used some heap fang shui to get uh, to spray a bunch of HTML text area elements, and they try to predict the address of where one of them will land. Um, and then they use that to try to fake the pointer so that when the get method gets called, it calls valid code. It's not just calling like an invalid pointer or whatever. Um, so what's interesting here is there's two sprays happening with this use after free. 
they're spraying array buffer objects to overlap with that use after free validation uh, validation message. That's really messing me up that uh, that object name, um, as well as the text areas to to avoid the crash. Um, they then detail how they took the UAF to an arbitrary decrement by using the delete bubble tree method. Uh, they actually use that twice. Uh, they use it to smash a reference count on the message header to set up a relative read primitive to leak a array buffer view. And then they use it again on the array buffer view's length to get the relative read write. Once you have relative read write, it's a matter of just positioning uh, an adjacent array buffer view and smashing the butterfly of that to get an arbitrary read write. Um, code execution from arbitrary read write is usually pretty straightforward. They basically they reused uh, a method that I've used in the past as well, and and some others have used. Um, they they just used one of the text area elements they sprayed, and I think they just smashed the V table. So in my opinion, this is a really awesome write up, and it does a good job of demonstrating the types of stages that are involved with browser exploitation. Um, going from something like a UAF to relative read write, or or rather to arbitrary decrement to relative read write to arbitrary read write to code exec. You can see there's that multi-stage process that's involved, and, and that's the case across almost every uh, browser exploit that you're going to see nowadays. Usually the implementation to move between the stages stays somewhat similar, um, and the strategies can kind of are portable uh, between exploits, but how you exploit that initial foothold is always what's kind of unique. Um, and I really like that strategy of, of spraying a bunch of objects to fake the method that gets called. Uh, it's a good way of using how WebKit works against itself. Uh, that's why I love it. There's people collecting metadata on PS4 to get this ported to higher firmwares, and I want to say someone already has it working on 7.02. I think it's just really unstable at the moment. I think they're trying to make it work uh, a bit better before releasing it, although I might be wrong. Maybe it's already out there. I, I well, haven't uh, looked in a few days. The end of this one does talk about them trying to uh, brute force it on uh, 7.02. Uh, I think it's just 7.xx, but... 7.02, I, I think, is probably what they were targeting there. Um, yeah, it, it is really tough, because PS4 has that added challenge of just sucking to work with. Um, when the when the browser crashes, it's... it's a uh, it, The state gets so messed up, so, it, yeah, it's hard to brute force. Um, but how, how people in the community are getting around that, trying to port it up, is uh, compensating for that by using numbers, right? Just getting a lot of people to, just getting a lot of data from lots of people and and putting it together to try to estimate where in the heap that address is going to land. Um, so yeah, like you said, they they attempted it, but they weren't able to uh, get it done because I think they probably would have gotten it done if they had more time. Uh, but they well, had the that's always the case. Exactly, it's always the yeah. case when it comes to brute force. It's a matter of time. You're always going to get it if you have enough time, but you may or may not actually have enough time. I will say I like this. I feel like we've almost been getting a little bit spoiled with write-ups recently that are including the exploit strategies and not just going as far as uh, getting like EIP or RIP or whatever. Oh, um, I like the trend. Yeah, and we've act we're covering at least one more, two more in this in this episode that will kind of do that. I appreciate that because that is a really important step that we don't see for the exploit dev side of things is, you know, how do you leverage some of these issues? Like they are issues, but leveraging them can be very complicated and tricky. And so it's useful to start being able to see these patterns by seeing more and more exploits actually including that information or more and more write-ups including that. Yeah. 
So I was a bit worried we might not get to see too much about this exploit for a while, um, because like I said, they they did present this at Black Hat, uh, Black Hat EU, I think, which is a paid conference, uh, but they put out the blog post and exploit code to complement it. I will definitely look out for when the Black Hat talk goes up, because usually they do put the talks up on YouTube like a, a few months afterwards or whatever. Um, so I'll definitely be keep, keeping a lookout for that, because uh, I think their, their slides and stuff could be really interesting to look at, too. But yeah. Uh, this is an awesome exploit. There's a really clever strategy here that could potentially be reused if you're in like a similar situation and a different bug. Um, this this could be a strategy you could take away and and use. Though it's not ideal. Ideally, you'd you'd get an info leak, um, either derive it or use a separate bug. But if neither of those is an option, this seems like uh, something you could attempt. And yeah, like I said, this is a a perfect blog post for showing how. Um, how you're basically playing a game of escalating your prim primitives of corruption to eventually get to that end goal of running arbitrary code. Um, browsers are just so much fun when it comes to exploitation. So whenever like blog posts come up about it, we'll definitely be be covering them on the podcast. All right. So uh, we have another article by Checkpoint. Uh, we like covering them on the show, though I think it has been a little bit since we've covered them. Um, this one is by Eel Itkin, and it's about a uh, some vulnerability research into Steam sockets. So, for those not aware, Steam is totally nuts when it comes to networking to the point where they literally have their own networking stack. Um, it's it's like a maze, and it's it's really amazing how well it works actually. Um, but as is the case with all networking stacks, it's a juicy target for exploitation. Um, as the blog post points out, you can use it to gain competitive advantages by booting other players or crashing other players, uh, crash the server. Um, and there's there's lots of other possibilities you can have with that. And they ended up finding four vulnerabilities they found in the game networking sockets library. And in this blog post, they tunnel in on the most interesting one they found. They don't really detail the other three. Um, but along with the vulnerability, they also detail some of the internals of how GNS works. And uh, they mention the fact that it supports both TCP and UDP-like messages. Uh, in terms of reliable and unreliable messages. Um, essentially, they send and split the message into unreliable and reliable segments, which are then reassembled. And that's why they they looked at this system, is packet reassembly is, you can tell just by hearing what it's doing that it's going to be really complex code. Um, so yeah, when they looked at it, they found an issue. Um, when they load the offset, they load it into an unsigned variable, but when they pass it to the function doing the parsing, it's passed as a signed integer. So there's a signedness issue there. Yeah, and this um, issue, um, I've definitely kind of seen similar things before. Um, obviously the signedness issue is, isn't exactly uh, uncommon, but um, just in, the terms, uh, in terms of dealing with fragmentation in general, um, the offset seems like a really common target and somewhere that is often just gotten wrong so you know something to keep in mind uh yeah in this case the negative offset actually gets mapped into negative memory relatively speaking yeah so after a bit of work um they eventually managed to work it into a heap buffer underflow uh, it ended up being really challenging to exploit though uh, because when the packet was being reassembled, the code didn't look for segments with negative offsets. Uh, so they had to kind of work around that. What they ended up doing was they exploited uh, the standard library, the C++ standard library's map class. 
Specifically, they targeted the end method since a map was being used internally for a balanced binary tree for the segments. I'm not going to go into the details of how they mess with standard library because C++ internals are hell when it comes to complexity. Um, I don't even fully understand them. I don't like C++. Um, not to start a language holy war, but under the hood, it's an absolute mess to try to understand and exploit. Um, but it seems they basically, they took it to a crash. I don't think they took it to like code execution or anything, sadly. Um, but yeah, they reported the issues September 2nd. Valve fixed them September 3rd, and uh, binary updates were shipped September 17th, which so that is crazy good turnaround time for Valve. They took it, um, they only took it to a crash, um, and the main reason for that ended up being that part of what would happen is, so with this exploit, they would basically end up making it so the end object uh, as it's searching, because it would search for this offset, like Spectre was saying, it would start at zero and it would search for this offset that's like negative. I think they're using negative hex 180. Um, it would search for that. It would never find it. So it would keep going until it reached the end object. And then they made the end object, uh, which is literally just a pointer past the last valid element. Um, they made that element look like a real element. Um, so the problem then is after all of this it would see that um end element do some things with but it would end up freeing it and that free is what broke the exploit um the free would be caught by tcml because hey this isn't something from the heap or this this isn't sorry this isn't a valid like buffer that you could be freeing we never gave you this buffer and that's why it would crash um so it doesn't seem like at least this exploit strategy will be usable at all um, it's not just like they need more work. It's the strategy seems like it just won't work. It's still an interesting attack and there's still the potential to get something just not with this strategy. Yeah, unfortunately, sometimes your your exploit scenario just kind of screws you. Um, you know, functions get called that you just don't have any say over. And, and like you said, it, it just kind of it blocked them here, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I, what surprised me the most, honestly, in this blog post was the timeline. Um, Valve fixed it literally in one day. And that is crazy good turnaround time for Valve. I feel like we've uh, said that a few times recently. It seems Valve is really starting to get better with turnaround times on exploit reports. Because in the past, there's been cases where they've had open bug reports for months on end. Especially on like their Hacker 1 and stuff. It seems lately they've been they've been getting faster and faster with with fixing issues, so that's cool to see. And I I couldn't believe that turnaround time. That's yeah. That's really I good, so I feel the potential exploitability of this one is significant and most likely a quick fix. Yeah, um, it, it could also be that it's not just a game level issue, right? Where it's in the uh, the Steam sockets. Yeah, it's that's a, a potentially a lot more serious. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So ZDI is back in the show after uh, a bit of a break with a blog post on macOS. Um, we have a macOS kernel out of bounds, right? The issue is in the Intel kernel extension. I'm assuming for interfacing with the Intel iGPU. In one of the commands, uh, they don't give the name. They just label it as hex10005. Um, it accepts a buffer from the client. And one of the members of the structure that's passed in for this command contains an offset for addressing into the buffer. 
and it seems there's just straight up no boundary checks on this. Um, so you just get an out of bounds right for free. Um, seems like a, a very low hanging fruit issue. Yeah, it's um, unclear exactly how you get control of that offset, though it is just the offset that has no boundary checks, like you said. But this structure, this command structure, is generated from this other command structure. So it's possible that it's literally just like the size that they do some work on, like add size plus however far into the array they are, whatever, because you pass in an array of the first one and then it gets passed into this process kernel command as a single structure of just one command at a time. So that could be kind of where it's coming from. It's unclear where they're getting control of the offset though, I think, at least I haven't seen them. I or I couldn't find them specifically mentioned where they were getting that from. Yeah. So the blog post doesn't really go into how they exploited it, um, but it does show a screenshot that seems to indicate that they did get code execution. Um, they managed to defeat kernel ASLR and expose the kernel task port, which as far as I understand it in Apple land is, is game over. Um, this was a pretty short blog post by ZDI. It's unfortunate we, we didn't really get many technical details around the like, I wish we had more technical details around the bug and certainly around the exploit, although with ZDI, that's kind of commonplace. We don't always get the exploit details in ZDI posts. I still thought it would be worth keeping in the show, though, and mentioning because kernel bugs are, are fun to see details on, especially Apple ones. And uh, related to that question earlier, I think it's another good case of an entry point that somebody who wanted to get into Apple security could play around with and, and see what they could do. So... Yeah, could could be a fun exercise for anybody out there looking for board and, and looking for something to do, especially where everything's going back into lockdown now. All right, so um, Abstract Shimmer. We have a post from NCC Group. Um, this is related to the container D shim, which is used for con Docker containers. Um, so with Docker, for those who have never used it, you can create and run containers, which may or may not use networking functionality. And something you can do is pass host networking functionality to it, which is not something that is advised um, because it can lead to issues like the one we're going to cover here. Yeah, it's so, not advised, but sometimes it is necessary uh, depending yeah. on what you're actually doing from the container. Like, obviously, use it sparingly. Yeah, exactly. So when a container is started, an abstract Unix socket gets created, which spawns a container shim process. The problem comes in when you allow a container to access that host networking and somebody has, I think they have to have root inside that container because they need capsys admin uh, capabilities. Um, but basically the problem is they can listen for the creation of new abstract sockets because they have access to that host networking um, and they can race to connect to it before Docker can. So that can allow you to access the, the Docker interface which they were then able to use to uh, overwrite their container configuration they were able to obtain arbitrary file read write through the, the file URI that's provided through um, Containerd. They also found you can mess with mounting of the rootfs directory to potentially wipe uh, the real root on the host, which is pretty destructive. And they do put like a big disclaimer when they talk about that, saying you probably shouldn't do this if you care about your box at all. But um, yeah, I mean, this is mostly like a PSA of do not expose host networking if you don't have to, because these are just some of the issues that you can encounter uh, when you do that. Yeah, I thought this was kind of a fun issue. There were, uh, like, one, just the racing for that 
like because you can listen for anybody else or any other container opening that um that abstract unix socket uh you can know when it's coming and then you just race to connect to it first like easy but i don't know that that's kind of i don't know why but i find that just to be a kind of fun issue like really easy to kind of understand what's going on there then yeah this post is actually goes pretty deep on some details uh one of the other things they noticed during this which i thought was a little bit funny is that um the go implementation actually doesn't has maybe a bit of a mistake i guess um i'm not sure if that's exact exactly what you'd call it but when making a connection it looks for the first character being an at sign and then replaced it with the zero which means you couldn't actually open a unix sock to anything with an at sign in it or at the beginning of it uh, which you know probably fine in most cases you're not really setting them up that way but i did think it was an interesting choice because like technically you should be able to and then goes internals you know makes that little change um they bring that up they bring up a lot of details in this one like there's a we've covered the core issue but they go into a lot of information another thing they get into is you know what what are the options to fix this so you might think okay well you know just use a pathed uh unix unix socket so use a proper path docker container isn't going to have that same path and you know you're fine um problems are that on that though uh like they start covering some the problems with doing that um and start looking at some of the other issues so using the linux security module options like app armor se linux um and actually i guess i should say with the using the abstract paths uh the issue there is just they're able to assume that container closes they're automatically garbage collected there's no extra work to do that if they're using it as a file backed one they need to do the cleanup they need to detect all of the exit cases which is more difficult than it might seem at first uh so that's where the you know, ncc group here starts talking about well how would you fix this lsm policies going into the issues there mostly it's container is kind of an odd place to be generating policies um, I don't think they quite say this, but I'd say it kind of feels more like a hot fix or like a band-aid patch for an issue rather than actually using that as your security your primary security mechanism on this. Um, talk about token authentication as another option, which just can't really be backported easily. No real mechanism to prevent brute force. So they mentioned timing attacks, but like doing a constant time comparison should be able to deal with that. Uh, just you know, not using equals equals um and they had another actually interesting one using the pit of the caller and then getting um uh obtaining kind of the called the pure process unix credentials of the socket um of the process accessing the socket and comparing that pid to the raw namespace id values um does kind of fall off with issues of uh pid reuse we've talked about that before or pit recycling but and they talk about a few different options here which is really interesting because oftentimes maybe if you're in the security industry you're not just finding the issues but you need to have knowledge on how to recommend a fix for them uh so it's interesting to see what they actually recommended here i wasn't aware of this uh this pid one 
um, as a interesting take, a little bit hacky, but still an interesting take on like a possibility if nothing else is going to work. Um, and obviously they did mention like it is ex still exploitable. Yeah, so I will quickly mention again, you you would need root inside of the guest container to be able to pull this off because you need the, the capsis admin capability, which if you are if your security you know, doesn't suck and you, you have to run a container that's using uh, the host namespace and you're probably going to try to secure that container so that somebody can't get root inside of it. But um, if they do, this attack does become feasible, but there is that barrier, I guess, uh, that I'll point out. So, yeah, well, there is there is that barrier, but it's worth noting, like getting getting a compromise of a of a it's kind of similar to kernel privilege escalations. There's usually that barrier if you need user land code execution. Uh, it's kind of the same. We're just talking about a Docker escape in this case, um, but it's still kind of the same same issue. Like, yeah, it is just the Docker escape, but it's still very relevant. Yeah. Yeah, it's fair. All right, so we'll end off our exploits with two vulnerabilities, uh, one in Node SAS and one in PNG image. So we'll start off with the issue in Node SAS. Um, this occurs when reading a SAS file and parsing the indent width. Uh, they allocate a buffer to hold the indent characters on the heap, but they add one to it when allocating it and use the original size when doing a stir copy. So there's an integer overflow there because if you pass something like negative one in, uh, when that one gets added to it, it'll end up passing zero to malloc, which for those who are not super familiar with uh, libc, usually that will end up with an eight byte allocation since that's the minimum size. Uh, malloc zero will not just fail, which I, I think it should, but I guess that's a disagreement on uh, with, with libc dev with libc devs with how that should work. Um, then yeah, the negative mention, size is um, past the stir copy, so you get a large overflow. It is only with indent length minus one that you get this issue because they're only adding one. Like there are no other values that you can get the wraparound with except negative one. Uh, since you had said numbers like negative one, I did want to clarify that. Yeah, and that is actually an important point because um, this is probably not exploitable. Actually, I'm going to say it's not exploitable um, because you would need to interrupt that stir copy. When you're passing something like a negative one to stir copy, it's going to treat it as an unsigned value, which is going to be an extremely large value, like 2.1 or whatever it is. Um, it, it, you, you're going to have a lot of bytes. The entire heap is going to get smashed and you're going to run into unmapped memory. It's pretty yeah, much there's... impossible to not crash in that case. <laughs> yeah, there's pretty much no case you're not going to crash. You don't have control over the data being copied either. Um, and they mention actually both of those points in this when talking about the exploitability. And I do want to say this article itself, it's actually part two, where it's exploring um, these native code that maybe you don't always notice. So the first part, they were looking at the native code in the runtime, where you know you might be using Node, but there's a lot of that JavaScript processing that happens in C. There's a lot that gets processed there. This one is looking at the glue. So for foreign function interfaces where you can write a little bit of code that'll translate basically between the JavaScript in this case and the C. And that's where this issue was. I think that's an interesting attack service that hasn't gotten a ton of attention. That specific glue code. Obviously the runtimes do get some attention. Um, 
but this specific glue coat I, I feel like maybe isn't looked at quite as much because it's usually very small um you know if you've only got like in this case they've got roughly you know three source lines i mean they, they've got more lines but roughly you could say three source lines um if you combined everything up it's hard to have issues in that small of code but obviously you know we can see that they do um and i, I just think that's an interesting attack service to be looking at uh, so i want to kind of call out what this post was about yeah yeah something a lot of people skip over um the second issue is a bit more interesting it's in png image it's another heap overflow related to parsing, uh, this time when parsing the rows for PNG data. Uh, they allocate an array to hold the data, but they multiply a user-provided row height by the number of row bytes. So you can see that multiplication, you have another integer overflow case. Part of why this is a more interesting issue, though, unlike the first one, is you can actually interrupt the writes so that you don't just smash everything and run into unmapped memory. And that's because once it runs out of user-provided data to parse, it'll just error out. So how they exploit this is they manipulate the heap to get near a link map chunk, and then they smash the uh, the relocation table to index into a fake symbol table uh, to get code execution. So that, that's kind of an interesting strategy. Uh, it would work with if ASLR was used, but I think you couldn't have Pi enabled. Yeah, so um, their case position um, independent. with this one was with the Pi. Uh, sorry, was without Pi. Um, yeah. Kind of the keyword, though, if you want to look into kind of that strategy, you're going to see something similar, not quite exactly the same, um, but uh, ret to DL resolve uh, would kind of be the generalized, at least a similar attack to this, returning into DL resolve. Um, kind of for a keyword if you want to Google more, although they include a ton of information in here. Key difference there is uh, that attack also requires that you control the call um, the call itself into the runtime resolver. It's taking advantage of um, how, like the global offset uh, procedure linkage table work, how it's going to resolve certain things at runtime. So it does also depend on um, that full railroad is not enabled. I think you can still do this with partial or you know, nothing, but uh, you can't do this with full railroad or at least their exploit strategy. Yeah. Um... For anybody that's interested, ELF stuff, like how um, executable linkable format works, is like really fascinating. Um, I had to do a lot of like reverse engineering on that when I was doing, and research on that when I was doing some PS4 stuff. And it is a really fascinating format. And that's, I kind of like this exploit strategy because of that. Um, but yeah, one thing I wanted to call out from the blog post is actually the very first uh, paragraph. They say this is in the first installment of series on native attack surface of interpreted languages. So it seems like that's going to be a a theme that's going to be continued throughout future blog posts on the uh, on GitHub Security Lab. So that that'll be kind of interesting to see because, like you said, that is kind of a skipped over thing. Like a lot of people see interpreted languages that are inherently memory safe, and they think, okay, well, there's not going to be any memory corruption here, which, you know, for all intents and purposes seems reasonable until you consider that there is that glue layer there there does have to be that interoperability and that's where you you can find these types of issues and i, I think it's there cool does, that we're going to be getting more blog posts on that you're kind of limited though in a lot of cases with how how much of it's actually exposed i mean so we had this uh node sas issue 
how many scenarios can you think of where user provided data um, is going to end up being passed in there where they're going to have that sort of control you just don't have any way of actually like there there's basically no case i can think of in a normal application where you could possibly have access to make that call to even control that information so it's a self-attack and it's not even a escalation of privilege like assuming it was exploitable it's not even that like it's user to user if you've got that level already now there's probably some random application out there that just exposes it for some reason or specifically to be vulnerable because it's a ctf like that's a possibility but that's the problem with attacking a lot that glue code is it also has to be exposed in a way you can hit it as an attacker uh, which makes the ping one kind of interesting because that is in the ping file you can imagine upload scenarios where you can get access on that you know upload a png file that gets processed like that's possible um but that is why some of them are looked at and when it comes to the um language runtimes PHP gets looked at a bit um, because there are a lot of cases where you kind of end up in a sandbox PHP. Uh, Java used to be really common for that, actually looking for runtime issues. Just because if you can do that, then you get Java applet in the browser and you can run away with code execution after that. Um, since Java introduced the uh, signing everything or needing to sign it to have... Um, to have access to something more privileged areas that has been less of a thing and obviously java applets are kind of being phased out in general uh but i mean yeah you're left at you've it's a hard attack surface to hit is kind of what i'm getting at um so it will be interesting that said the first installment was like six months ago and now the second installment so i don't think we're going to be seeing this as like a weekly thing um it, it'll be a while I, I would like to see more of it because it is still an interesting case. Like I said, this ping one especially is hittable. Um, and as a write-off, like this is a very detailed write-off. Um, like that, there's that's, a a, that's a good shout on the exploitability aspect. I did just want to quickly go off top for a second and say, you call PNG files ping files? I've never heard anybody say that before. Oh, well, <laughs> yes, yes, I do. That's fascinating. All right. I, I've known you for a while, and I've never heard you call them that. So, all right. Ping files. Maybe I'll start doing that, too. Makes it easier to say. Um, yeah, sorry. Did you have a uh, final thought on that, though? Before we move into oh, our research? Yeah, actually, not actually related to the exploit, but I do want to call out that he uses Jeff in this, uh, GDB Enhanced Features. Um, and just a reminder to everybody, if you're still out there... Um, if you're still out there using PETA or GDB init, upgrade, please. <laughs> I'm a PETA stan, okay? I really like PETA. I'm going to keep using it just because you told me not to. No, I, I, I do like PETA, and I've, I've been meaning to try it, Jeff. I just I just never got around to it. Yeah, um, I mean, there it has more features. I mean, PETA just isn't, like, I mean, if you really like PETA, fine, like, it's not like you're opening yourself to be exploited or something. It's just, it's not being maintained anymore as far as I'm aware. Um, GDB enhanced features has a lot more 
enhanced features than even PETA does. I just wanted to shout it out as like, if you're not aware that there are other options, there are other options. Um, and for those asking in chat, clearly it said GIF. I, I was about to ask you about that. Um, <laughs> but, I say, I yeah. say GIF. I, I usually say GIF, but sometimes I do say uh, say GIF, but you know, it de depends on the time of day, I guess. Um, could you upload the stream to YouTube for future reference? We always upload the uh, VODs on YouTube, usually about 24 hours after the stream, uh, just because we have to do that because we're Twitch affiliates. So. Um, but yeah, they're on YouTube and they're also on like Spotify and stuff like that. All right, so we'll uh, we'll move into our research topic. So this was an interesting blog post into PDFs uh, by Port Swigger, who uh, we've we've covered as well in the past, um, and it talks about how hyperlinks can basically give you um, injection into a PDF and how that can be used to exfil data to a remote server. And this is because of the fact that PDFs are super powerful. Um, I've said it before. I, I don't think people realize how many functionalities PDFs actually provide. Um, they allow input for things like forms and annotations and stuff like that. And, and that's where they're, they're targeting with these injections, particularly on the annotations. Um, so they go into some background about how PDFs work internally and how like text nodes are managed. Um, internally, they're enclosed inside of parentheses. And uh, they went into researching into a bunch of like PDF libraries to try to pull off an attack on if you can inject parentheses, breaking out and seeing what you could do there. Um, they ended up focusing on two that they found that worked, uh, PDFLib and JSPDF. With PDFLib, they were able to use annotation URIs as a point of injection. Um, with that, they were able to inject and run JavaScript. So using JavaScript, you could exfiltrate uh, the, the PDF data over a post request, or you could use the form submission functionality. You didn't even have to use the JavaScript if you didn't want to. Um, with JSPDF, well, it's, it's very similar. Submission... Sorry, the form submission, you still needed to, like, you either need somebody to actually click submit on the form if you want it to be actually automated, um, then you need to use JavaScript to force the submit of the form, but you were able to have the entire form get posted just by uh, setting one of the flags um, in that form. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, JSPDF had a similar issue. They were able to inject through the annotation link URLs. Um, another thing they wanted to try to pull off with this attack was PDFs loaded from the local file system instead of in the browser. This is a little bit harder because of the tricks uh, they already used. They would result in a prompt to confirm submission of the form, like you kind of talked about there. Um, so they wrote in the numerator to try to look for functions that would call out to a server without prompting the user. Uh, they ended up finding one that would cause a DNS interaction, uh, CV shared review if offline dialog, um, and then they could use the DNS as as a medium to exfil the contents of the PDF. Um, now, with both PDFLib and JSPDF, initially their injections required user interaction to click the link for it to trigger. Um, but with JSPDF, at least, they found a feature in the JS uh, or in the PDF specification uh, that allowed them to get it to run automatically with zero click. And this is using PV entries, which um, I, I looked at the PDF spec specification quickly because unfortunately they didn't really um, include exactly what those were. But basically they're used to describe actions like uh, events to be ran when the page containing the annotation is shown. Um, now there is some additional stuff in the post that I, I'm not really going to cover for brevity's sake. 
Um, but a bonus thing that they included that I thought was cool was the mention of this being used for a uh, surf attack. Um, you can you can send post requests as mentioned earlier, but mainly what they talked about there was using it to exfiltrate data. But you could also use it to send arbitrary data, including new lines. Um, so you could potentially chain that with like request smuggling or something like that too. And I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, attack strategy that they mentioned there. Um, yeah, this whole post, like, I remember some years ago I had a scenario where I was able to inject into a PDF. I didn't end up really taking it too far besides just a JavaScript alert, but I remember trying to look for information about other people who have done that. And this is really one of the first really good write-ups on trying to exfil that I've seen. Now, he does actually mention at the end a couple of resources, so perhaps I've just missed some of them. Um... Yeah, I think there were like some conference presentations and stuff, but yeah, I, I'm I don't not think sure. there was much beyond that. Yeah. That said, this is still like it as usual out of Port Swigger, like their team does good research. Um and useful research that like yeah, you know, this even though he only covers that the two were actually vulnerable, there are scenarios still where you can end up injecting into a PDF. Um could be outside of JavaScript. I think the one that I had was a Python application. Oh, um, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know what library I was using. It was Blackbox, but... I, I mean, it's just... It, it is a scenario that... Outside of going for the alert, I haven't really looked too much into it, but it's always kind of been there on the back of my mind, too. You know, like, what more can you start doing with it? And, I mean, especially for, like, pen testers who are going to want to leverage some of these issues, definitely worth being aware of, you know, to go and leverage, uh, like, C-Surf out of it and stuff once you get somebody to open it. It's interesting because it follows... It's another one that follows that theme of something you don't really think about as a potential target like you don't really think about input into pdfs and like even somebody in our chat was like wait um you can execute javascript in the context of pdfs like pdfs are one of those things that are just people don't know how wild they are they are and like the bonkers levels of capabilities that they can expose yeah like, i mean it's crazy it has gotten better now with like or pdf um and whatever firefox calls their pdf reader which are a lot more limited in functionality but you know like acrobat being one of the main pdf readers has a lot of uh bloat within it um it's adobe so yeah is in the title i guess I mean, it's just growing so much over the years, and they keep adding and adding and adding to it. Yeah, it's just one of those things that, like, because PDFs have been a long time, long time attack vector, uh, mostly in the sense of using macros and just malicious, or not macros, but using malicious PDFs as a point of compromise and using vulnerabilities in PDF readers. Like, those have been for a while. This one is a little bit more interesting. Um. Just because of that injection attack, like it's not that uncommon when you're able to control something in a PDF. It is a little bit more uncommon when you're able to actually get the injection and have like from that control. Uh, a little bit less common, but but I mean it, it, it's definitely there. It's definitely a scenario I've personally been in. I'm sure others have too. So 
I want to, you know, call out this research. Yeah. Um, it just seems like a lot of the capabilities that PDF exposes seem like wildly unnecessary. And I, I don't see like, have you ever used annotations in a PDF? I know I haven't. <laughs> um, maybe. maybe. I can't recall yeah. a specific time, but I very well may have. Yeah, but I don't imagine like some of those features are used very often. They're just like unnecessary attack surface. Um, I, I like the, the discussion in the chat. Um, NES PDF emulator ETA when and uh, can it run Doom? That would be fun to see. That, that could be a... I'd love to see that, but I, I don't know if it's that powerful. I don't know. I mean, I guess if you got code execution in it, you could probably do something like that, but that that's probably the only way you're getting something like that. All right, so uh, we'll begin wrap, winding down the show with uh, some shout-outs. Uh, Z, I, I know you you have the first one here, so I'll let you take it away. Yeah, kind of on the same line with the research. Um, I just wanted to shout this out, but Hacker Scrolls. Uh, they put together a Hacker Scroll um, of C-Surf. Or not C-Surf, sorry, S-Surf or SSRF. Um in terms of going from your SSRF, you know, how do you leverage that for more? How do you get information out and just kind of a mind map of how do you utilize that? Which I think is a really interesting mind map to put together. Because uh, there are like so many different options. And, you know, obviously there's going to be probably things that aren't on this list, some more creative ideas, but they cover a lot of your key is or key things that you should be thinking of when you do have a um, SSRF issue. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of shout it out as something to check out. Um, and they do have some other scrolls that looked interesting. Um, I I think they had one for iOS, but the same information, if I recall, was still pretty relevant for just Android apps too, or it might have been a mobile one. Um, but yeah, they just put out this SSRF one to take a look at. So I have a shout out as well. Um... Hacker One is putting out a 12 days of hacky holidays. Um, just wanted to quickly shout it out. I saw it promoted on Twitter. Um, we've gotten a lot of, of questions in the past with like, where do, where do I get started? And, and this seems like a fun place you could potentially look at. Um, plus we, we cover Hacker One issues a lot on, on the podcast as well. Um, as I understand it, these will mostly be web challenges. It, it doesn't seem like um, binary will be a part of it. So if that's your thing, then you may just want to skip it. But I thought it was worth giving a quick shout, and if it looks interesting to you, that that could be something you could do if you're if you're bored over the holidays or whatever. Yeah, I'm I'm not a big fan of um, well, Hacker One. They're normal CTF, so they do have kind of a long running war game, which you can use to get invites. My assumption is that this is going to, this is similar to that, and if that's the case, um, then. A lot of times, like they give you an application, you already have to know a lot of the issues. Um, and it's kind of a test to see whether or not you know how to test. Um, and thus you get access to private programs. And they say with this one, each flag gets you up to three private invites to private programs on Hacker One. So I'm going to assume like this probably isn't the best place to go if you're trying to learn. Uh, this is more of a place that you go like if you already know and just want to play around and test yourself a little bit. That said, I have not done their Christmas one here, but my feeling is that that's probably kind of the route they've gone because they are still offering the private program access. Uh, so yeah, just being 
worth being aware of the fact that like it's not great for beginners to learn through like i wouldn't recommend this or their normal war game as a learning resource but it is fine for like testing and getting a feel for oh uh, whether or not you're ready for actual bounties i guess yeah and uh, and helping you break into some of those private programs for sure I, I've heard a lot of them that you get access to through their CTF um, aren't the best programs, aren't that great. I'm not sure how oh, that really? exactly That's works, but I have, I've heard from a few people that they haven't gotten any good programs out of the CTF invites. Oh, okay. Um, so Z, I know you have a, a final shout-out along the same vein. Yeah, I figured I'd mention one other one, which is the Sands Holiday Hack Challenge. Um, I think their reward um, is a little bit better. You get a free uh, Sans online training course of your choice. They're only giving it out to one person with the overall best answer. Um, it, again, a lot of these issues are are going to be more web. They do have some kind of forensics, more defensive questions too. Uh, so I do like kind of the holiday hack just because of that. Like it is, it's a little bit more of a mixed bag in terms of the challenges. Still not much when it comes to the binary issues. Uh, but I did think it would be fun to point it out. And like I said, you can get one of the Sans courses through it for having the best overall answer. They do have some other things like most creative answer that's technically correct. Gets a pass to attend RSA uh, conference. Um, and best technical answer is a subscription to NetWars Continuous 2 for four months. And then seven people at random will get a t-shirt. Um, I, I just noticed, I was, I was looking around on the site when you brought it up, and uh, they have a free album, which I thought was kind of interesting. And while you were talking about uh, the prize stuff, I was listening to some of the tracks out of that free album. And it seems like it's a, a Christmas spin on uh, on like hacker like synth wave type stuff i guess that's usually like associated with like hacking and stuff so that that might be cool to check out maybe i'll, I'll give a listen to a few of those tonight um but yeah i thought that was kind of funny the free album hey that's that's a nice little bonus that goes on top of it um but yeah i think the big thing here is probably the prizes um i think you mentioned uh i can't remember i was listening to the music so i, I didn't hear if you mentioned it i, but, I did uh, mention all the prizes there and i do think the online course yeah I do think the online course is kind of a big deal just because that is like a seven to eight thousand dollar thing. There's a lot of value there, yeah. Yeah, but it is just one winner of that. Yeah. All right. So that pretty much sums up all of our topics for this episode. Uh thank you to everyone who tuned in. Once again, this is our last episode before our two week two week break. Uh we'll be back on January fourth. Um, that said, you can catch the VODs on Twitch or on YouTube at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific af on Tuesday after the stream. Um, we also have previous podcasts up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Anchor. Uh, go ahead and join our Discord and follow us on Twitter for updates. We'll still be posting there over the next two weeks. Uh, we just won't be doing the podcast. Um, you can find the link in chat or in the description of the video. Uh, and we will see you all again after the break.